This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker for a very busy show tonight. As you'll probably know, MPs are debating amendments about whether or not to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. There's a demonstration in Parliament Square. We're going to be giving you um, all the updates as they come in um, to talk me through. The evening's events. I'm joined by Rivka Brown. Coming up on tonight's show, we'll talk about um, the Supreme Court decision to make it um, impossible for the government to send people to Rwanda um, at the moment. Um, Rishi Sunak has a response. He's going to change the law. By decree, Rwanda will become safe, we are told. Um, and we will also be giving you the latest updates from Gaza. First story. MPs will soon be voting on two amendments to the King's speech that would demand a ceasefire in Gaza. One of the amendments has been put forward by Labour backbenchers, including Zara Sultana and Richard Bergen, and the other is from the SNP. But both Labour and the Tories have whipped their MPs not to vote for them. Starmer isn't speaking in the debate, but his team told Politico his position hasn't changed since he gave this speech two weeks ago. While I understand calls for a ceasefire at this stage, I do not believe that it is the correct position now for two reasons. One, because a ceasefire always freezes any conflict in the state where it currently lies. And as we speak, that would leave Hamas with the infrastructure and the capability to carry out the sort of attack we saw on October the 7th. Attacks that are still ongoing. Hostages who should be released, still held. Hamas would be emboldened and start preparing for future violence immediately. And it is this context which explains my second reason which is that our current calls for pauses in the fighting for clear and specific humanitarian purposes, and which must start immediately, is right in practice as well as principle. That was a terrible argument two weeks ago, and it's a terrible argument now. Um, As Israeli officials keep saying publicly, this assault on Gaza is not just about removing Hamas or weakening Hamas. It is about making Gaza unlivable. Now, these are just some recent quotes from Gazan officials, from Israeli officials, sorry. Um, The first one is from an anonymous Israeli defense official who said this. Gaza will eventually turn into a city of tents. There will be no buildings. Another key advisor, um, this time to the defense minister, said this. Israel needs to create a humanitarian crisis in Gaza, compelling tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands to seek refuge in Egypt or the Gulf. The entire population of Gaza will either move to Egypt or move to the Gulf. Now, those statements were both made in the week after the October the 7th attacks, and Israel's actions have been in line with those words. According to the UN, Israel has now destroyed or damaged more than 50% of buildings in Gaza, and the humanitarian crisis is extreme, beyond words. Four and a half thousand children have already been killed. Hospitals are out of fuel and under attack, and virtually the whole strip is out of water. This is not a surgical operation to take out Hamas. This is a war against an entire people. This is what those who oppose a ceasefire are enabling. This is what Starmer is arguing should 
continue. Now, of course, the part of the plan that Israel still hasn't achieved is expelling people from Gaza. It's 2.2 million inhabitants living under constant fear of death are still there. But more recent comments from Israeli ministers show expulsion is still on the agenda. Just yesterday, Israel's finance minister said this. The acceptance of refugees by the countries of the world who truly care about Gazans' well-being, with the support and generous economic support of the international community, including the state of Israel, is the only solution that will bring an end to the suffering of Jews and Arabs both. So he's saying kicking people out, people becoming refugees elsewhere in the world, that is the only solution. There is no solution for Israel which involves Gazans living in Gaza, Palestinians living in Gaza. Two days earlier, the deputy speaker of the Knesset, who is a member of Netanyahu's party, put that strategy in even more brutal terms. We need to put them, the Palestinians, on boats and send them wherever will be good for them. They're wanted in Scotland. We'll hand them over. And I'm not sure if that's a dig at Hamza Youssef, but clearly that is someone saying he wants all the Gazans to leave, doesn't really care where they go. Israel's agriculture minister has also made explicit what the appropriate historical comparison here is. He has said, We are now rolling out the Gaza Nakba. From an operational point of view, there is no way to wage a war, as the IDF seeks to do in Gaza, with masses between the tanks and the soldiers. Gaza Nakba 2023. That's how it'll end. Now, if you regularly watch the show, you know what the Nakba is. The Nakba is in 1945 when Israel was created and 700,000 Palestinians were driven from their homes. It was an act of ethnic cleansing. The Palestinians call it a Nakba, the catastrophe. And you've got an Israeli minister there saying, that's what's going to happen again. It's going to be the Nakba 2023. We're going to drive the Palestinians out of their homes in Gaza. We're going to continue. We're going to complete the job that we started in 1948, essentially. So this is what letting Israel fight on is allowing them to do, right? Every extra day Israel gets to bomb Gaza doesn't just mean hundreds more innocent lives being lost, more children with dead fathers, more mothers with dead children, and more families wiped off the map. It also means one more day where Israel is able to create new facts on the ground to achieve Netanyahu's long-term aim of emptying Gaza. And that ambition really is long-term. In 1979, Max Hastings wrote a book about Netanyahu's brother. It included this passage. At Bibi Netanyahu's dinner table in Jerusalem, I listened with crawling dismay to Bibi talking about the future of his country. Quote, in the next war, if we do it right, we'll have a chance to get all the Arabs out, he said. We can clear the West Bank, sort out Jerusalem. He joked about the Galani Brigade, the Israeli infantry force in which so many men were North African or Yemenite Jews. They're okay as long as they're led by white officers he grinned. So every day we let Israel continue to bomb Gaza is a day we let Bibi Netanyahu get closer to that genocidal aim, stated 40 years ago. And if we look at the facts on the ground, if we look at the number of buildings that have been destroyed, it seems pretty clear that he's trying to put that into practice today. So what have Labour MPs had to say for their position of opposing these pro-ceasefire amendments. Well, this was Pat McFadden on Radio 4 this morning. The problem with simply saying ceasefire now is it leaves the Hamas capability and intent in place. And we heard from the Hamas spokesperson, Mr. Ghazi Hamad, uh, a week or so ago, saying that what happened on October the 7th, the greatest slaughter of Israeli civilians since the end of the war, was an intent that Hamas had to repeat a second, a third, 
and a fourth time. Look, I understand why people want this to stop. I want this to stop. Everybody wants uh, the violence in Gaza to stop and the humanitarian crisis there uh, to end. But I think we have to raise our sights above simply calling for a ceasefire. And uh, the pattern in the past 10 years has been uh, rockets are fired, uh, there are uh, outbreaks of hostilities, and then it repeats itself in a year or two's time. International opinion can now see that that uh, process of repeated conflict and containment has failed. But Mr. And we need to come out of this sure. with something uh, bigger and more ambitious than just saying a ceasefire now. I mean, on the one hand, just so dishonest, we need something bigger and more ambitious than saying just a ceasefire. Now, no one is saying just a ceasefire, right? People are saying have a ceasefire so we can put some pressure on both sides to come to some solution which is relatively just, right? No one's saying, oh, just stop the bombing and then forget about Palestine again, right? I say ceasefire, then put sanctions on Israel so that they can no longer illegally expand their settlements in the West Bank and there is some chance of a two-state solution. Other people say we should have a ceasefire and what we should do is put sanctions on Israel so they are forced to give Palestinians between the river and the sea the vote and you have a one-state secular state. I'm actually fine with both of them. But either way, we have a ceasefire to save lives now, to stop Israel changing facts on the ground so that it can ultimately make Gaza unlivable and what they want to do is clear it of its population, right? How does that help us get to that end? It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Also, there was some worrying logic at the start of that clip, right? Because McFadden's argument appears to be this. If political leaders do and say extremely violent things, we should bomb and flatten the homes, schools, and hospitals of their people, right? A Hamas leader has said some extreme things. Hamas have done some extreme things. Therefore, we should bomb the hospitals of the Gazans. Now, as I hope my introduction has shown, if that were the case, we should already be carpet bombing Tel Aviv, right? If, if political leaders saying extreme things means you get to bomb their capital city, then what, why don't we have planes over Tel Aviv dropping bombs on civilian infrastructure? Now, of course, that's not something I would advocate, but it's the psychopathic logic our political class appear all too happy to go along with, so long, of course, as the victims of Palestinians. Now, it's a grotesque position, which has led many shadow ministers to consider rebelling this evening and voting for pro-ceasefire motions. But to try and minimise a rebellion, Starmer has put forward an alternative amendment. Now, this is the key passage of the front bench amendment. While acknowledging the daily humanitarian pauses to allow in aid and the movement of civilians, this House believes they must be longer to deliver humanitarian assistance on a scale that begins to meet the desperate needs of the people of Gaza, which is a necessary step to an enduring cessation of fighting as soon as possible and a credible diplomatic and political process to deliver the lasting peace of a two-state solution. So, Labour wants Gazans to have a bit more time to get supplies in before the bombing of their homes resumes. They don't necessarily just want four-hour humanitarian pauses. Maybe they could be six hours or 12 hours long. Whatever the case, people will still be getting bombed. Whole, whole houses, whole apartment blocks, hospitals will still be collapsed. There will still be whole families who are losing their lives every single night. The second bit of this, which I find even more cowardly, is they say they want fighting to end, quote, as soon as possible. Now that is cowardly because it's a completely empty statement, right? The demand for a ceasefire now 
which is in those amendments. Now that means something. Stop the bombing immediately, right? We don't want to see more families die. We don't want to see more kids die. We don't want to see more civilian infrastructure taken out for no clear purpose other than ethnic cleansing, right? A ceasefire, when possible, means nothing. It allows Israel to say this, sure, we'll stop bombing when it's possible, but it's not possible yet. We still haven't destroyed Hamas. Oh, and we still want to make Gaza just that little bit more unlivable. Can you please stop bombing when possible? Completely meaningless. And one frontbencher um, who wasn't convinced by Labour's new position was Shadow Minister for Crime Reduction, Naz Shah. Um, she said this in today's debate. We must do what is right. Whilst it may be a matter of convention to follow our closest ally, the US, in interest of foreign policy, it is a matter of conscience to step away from our closest ally in the interest of peace. We know that eventually there will be a ceasefire in this current crisis. Every war ends with a cessation of hostilities. The question is not if there will be a ceasefire, but when. For the people of Palestine, every minute, every hour, every day we wait is another orphan, another grieving mother and another family wiped out. This is why in standing to save innocent lives of both Palestinians and Israelis and representing the people of Bradford West in today's motion, I will be supporting the amendment which, which seeks an immediate ceasefire. The question is not if there will be a ceasefire, but when, right? Naz Shah is exactly right. She's put that perfectly. Of course, there will be a ceasefire at some point, right? When possible, there will be a ceasefire. But it, the sides get to decide when possible. And given Israel has all the power, they get to decide when possible. It's only by saying, now, the ceasefire should be now. Not, we hope there's a ceasefire at some point in the future. What pressure is that putting on Israel? None whatsoever. Now, Naz Shah, for taking such a reasonable position, is expected to face the sack. She has broken the labor whip. Another frontbencher who's rebelling is Helen Hayes. Um, she's a shadow education minister. My conscience tells me that I must call for a ceasefire today, for a halt to this dreadful destruction and conflict where far too many have already died on both sides mm -hmm. and more will continue to, to die if the violence does not cease. We must call for a ceasefire. MPs are still debating the ceasefire amendments. They will be voting at around 7pm. Um, over 50 Labour MPs are expected to vote for a ceasefire um, and up to a dozen frontbenchers are said to be considering rebelling and therefore we presume getting the sack. Rivka, how significant do you think this vote is? I don't think the significance of it can be overstated, really. The only comparable vote I can think of is the 2003 vote um, over the invasion of Iraq. I think it will go down as a, a as a major turning point in British political history. Um, and the names of the rebels, and indeed, probably more importantly, the names of the people who uh, who followed the whip, will will be remembered forever. You know, quite similar to the invasion of Iraq. Whenever a Labour MP tries to attest their credentials as a defender of human rights um, or as a kind of progressive of any sort, their voting record on this specific amendment will be cited again and again and again. You supported genocide. I think all the more so over time as the scale of Israel's um, you know, raising of Gaza and indeed attack on, on the West Bank as well uh, becomes more and more egregious. You know, this, just as it will go down in British political history, I mean, it, it, it's evidently going to go down in Palestinian history, in Middle East history. And the idea that, um, you know, genocide is a kind of... Um, 
political term or a polemical term will become more and more um sort of undermined as as the kind of plain fact of Israel's not just genocidal intent, but genocidal capabilities and genocidal um, acts uh, becomes becomes clear. So I think, you know, this is this is another major moment when um, the house will be divided between politicians who consider themselves servants of their party and politicians who consider themselves servants of the people. We have to remember here that 76% of the British public now that, that must include huge numbers of not just Labour voters, but Conservative voters um, as well, um, as well as people as well as people of all stripes, people who are otherwise politically apathetic, um, support a ceasefire. Now, those people are going to look at the result of today's vote, and if they don't feel represented by their politicians, well, we know what happens. We know exactly what happens when when the public feels like liberal democratic um, structure and the kind of normal systems of democracy and their represented, their elected representatives aren't listening to them, they turn more and more to, to further and more extreme populist figures, usually on the far right. We see it happening across Europe. Georgia Maloney, Recep Erdogan, Donald Trump. You know, this complete riding roughshod, as it almost definitely will be, over the, the the kind of democratic will of the people is going to have major implications for mistrust in our politicians, which will in turn embolden the only people in this country who appear to be taking seriously, um, not that I believe that they are the only people who are taking seriously, but certainly they present themselves as being the only people who take seriously the, 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 the fears and feelings of the general public. And that's people like Tommy Robertson. That's people like Nigel Farage. That's people like Suella Braverman. You know, those are the people that are going to be emboldened by this complete and utter disregard for the for the will of the people tonight. Um, and, you know, in, in terms of um, Labour's kind of game playing, it's obviously going to, uh, you know, it's already electorally backfiring. We've seen already polls coming in that suggest that Keir Starmer um, has dropped something like 10 uh, points in polls about his strong leadership qualities and 18 points when it comes to questions of um, how united Labour seems. You know, one of Keir Starmer's primary um, promises when he was making his bid for Labour leader was that he was going to unite a divided party. But now it appears the party is more divided perhaps than ever and for incredibly good reason. I think we can think of sometimes when Labour was a little bit more divided under Jeremy Corbyn, but um you know, Keir Starmer's authority is pretty much in place, isn't it? I mean, I think where I really do agree with you is is on sort of the ethical stakes here. Now, I imagine, you know, what would be said by sort of defenders of someone not breaking the whip now is they say, look, the difference between now and Iraq is that Iraq, that was a decision that was being made by by Britain. You know, it was, it was the British troops who were being sent to Iraq. So that that vote in parliament sort of hadn't added significance because it was our war. But I think that understates the extent to which, you know, Israel's actions in Gaza are also our actions, right? We are very much implicated. We we are giving this country diplomatic cover. We send them weapons, we send them arms. And I think if a country such as the UK had voted in parliament to call for a ceasefire, that would have significant international ramifications. So I keep seeing people on Twitter sort of saying, why are, why are Labour MPs bothering to rebel on this when what happens in parliament doesn't make any difference anyway? 
Well, I mean, you could say that you could say that about a lot of things, right? You could. I, I'm sure there were MPs who said that about Iraq, in the sense of, well, this is going to pass anyway. You know, it, it doesn't seem like there's going to be a majority against invading Iraq, so we might as well just vote with Tony Blair, even if we've got some doubts, right? Now, that had some political ramifications, and I think it could be that a similar thing happens here. I I, I imagine that you know, a next a future Labour leadership election, um, how you voted in this is going to be significant. And there are going to be, be lots of MPs where how they voted in this is going to be significant at the next general election, which, to be honest, is probably determining why we are seeing some um, front benches say that this is the position which they have to, uh, you know, make a stand on. You know, I, I'm sure a lot of them are doing it for for very sort of, you know, reasons involving integrity as well. I mean, I believe Nan Shah when she says she really cares about the Palestinians and that it, it matters to her that we call for a ceasefire now, not just at some time in the future, um, but sort of electoral considerations will surely be coming into this with many of them. And I think, you know, those electoral considerations are probably less about will it swing the next general election, but will it cause some serious problems for specific MPs in specific constituencies? In the long run, we potentially shouldn't over or understate, sorry, how much this will sort of impact people's ideas of Keir Starmer as a man with integrity. Although, you know, at the moment, as you say, um, Rivka, he has lost some points when it comes to sort of personal ratings, but Labour are still sort of 25 points uh, ahead in the polls, largely because the Tories are a mess, which we will talk about a little bit later on the show. Um, let's go back to some speeches in today's debates. Now, on the back benches, Zara Sultana um, is one of the MPs that tabled a pro-ceasefire pro um, motion. In the debate, she said this. Israel's assault on Gaza has been done with this government's unequivocal support and complicity and almost certainly with British made arms. I can see smirking happening on the front bench. Don't think it's a laughing matter, personally speaking. So when the government refuses to support a ceasefire, it gives Israel the green light to continue its slaughter of innocent Palestinians. When it refuses to support a ceasefire, it is refusing to push back against Israeli politicians and policies that aim to ethnically cleanse Palestinians from their lands. And Madam Deputy, Mr. Deputy Speaker, I am horrified, utterly horrified, that after all of this, members of this House are still willing to give Israel the green light, proposing nothing more than humanitarian pauses. There is nothing humanitarian about letting children eat a little today, only to bomb them tomorrow. The only humanitarian way forward is an immediate ceasefire, as has been recognised from everyone from the Pope to the President of France, as well as 76% of the British public, according to polling. So to members across this House, I say this. The children killed in Gaza today could have been saved by a ceasefire agreed yesterday. So I urge you, I implore you, we will be remembered for this vote. So let's be on the right side of history and vote for a ceasefire today. That was Zara Sultana making a, a very well-articulated argument inside Parliament. Um, outside Parliament, so in Parliament Square, a protest is currently taking place. The rally um, is organised by the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, who say tonight's vote is a moral test for MPs. They've also um, said that 125,000 people have contacted their MP to encourage them to vote for a ceasefire. I've seen this all over Instagram, sort of people saying, uh, send um, a message to your MP to demand that they vote for a ceasefire. I'm sure that will have affected um, some people's decision-making this evening as well. Um, of course, we'll be coming back to this story once the vote comes in after 7pm, so do stay tuned for that. Let's go to our next story. After days of encircling the Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza City, last night Israeli troops entered the building. An IDF spokesperson gave this description of the operation. 
Based on intelligence information and an operational necessity, IDF forces are carrying out a precise and targeted operation against Hamas in a specified area in the Shifa hospital. The IDF is conducting a ground operation in Gaza to defeat Hamas and rescue our hostages. Israel is at war with Hamas, not with the civilians in Gaza. The IDF forces include medical teams and Arabic speakers who have undergone specified training to prepare for this complex and sensitive environment with the intent that no harm is caused to the civilians being used by Hamas as human shields. So a promise there that no civilians would be harmed. But news emerging from inside the hospital tells a different story. This footage shows the aftermath of an Israeli strike on the intensive care unit in the Shifa hospital last night. You can see smoke filling the rooms and operating theatres, as well as rubble all around, while patients are stretched to safety. And just before the raid began, a doctor working inside our Shifa made this desperate call to the IDF. You being inside the hospital will create a state of fear and hysteria among the patients here. So I'm not interested in hearing this. The hallways are full of people. All floors of the hospital are full of people, from floor one through to six. You keep saying, if this will create a problem for you, if you want to enter and see for yourself, the hospital is full of people. The reception and surgery unit is full of displaced people. Dialysis unit is full of people. Delivery, radiology, administration are empty. In the burns unit on the right side of the hospital, that's full of patients and full of displaced people too. It's just ugh, unbelievable. And I mean, you've got to think of the sort of decision that people in that hospital are being forced to make. Now, one, many of them just physically can't leave, right? Because they're undergoing um, treatment. You know, they're on a dialysis machine, right? Um, they're physically injured, so they can't leave. But then also, even if you were, you know, physically fit and you were being told to leave the hospital, well, you know what happens outside the hospital, right? Which is that, oh, so we'll, we'll leave the hospital because the troops are going to come in. Then, then we'll just get bombed on the outside. Now, even with the IDF saying, please, you need to leave the hospital because it's unsafe, I, I, uh, you know, I, it seems reasonable to me to think, well, the hospital's still probably going to be safer than anywhere else because at least international attention is on it. If they kill us in the hospital, at least there'll be a little bit of outrage. If they kill us in um, a building three blocks down, then no one's going to notice. So, you know, what are you supposed to do? You're putting people in such an impossible situation. Right. Now, to give a sense of the kind of operation underway, it's important to know um, that the Al-Shifa is not just a single building, but a large complex. Now, this satellite image shows the scale of that complex, with several buildings arranged around a large central courtyard. There are currently around 700 patients, 400 medical staff, and over 2,000 displaced Palestinians trapped inside the grounds. The BBC's Gaza correspondent, Rushdie Abalouf, gave this report on Israel's incursion into the hospital. Around 2.30 uh, in the morning, local time, 12.30 GMT. Uh, according to our uh, source inside the hospital, about six Israeli tanks and uh, enter the uh, uh, courtyard of the hospital with about 100 Israeli command, commandos, uh, soldiers, uh, started to move inside the uh, emergency department, quoting the Khadr Azanun, a witness inside the uh, hospital. He said, they were shouting in, in Arabic, screaming, don't move, don't move. And there were medics among them. 
and they enter the uh, main uh, department, the emergency, and uh, is the biggest department in the in the hospital, and it's like four or five story uh, building. So they started interrogating the they said the medical uh, staff and the patient. The Israeli military claims that they've given people inside the hospital ample warning to leave. But in his report, Abaluf cast doubt on whether they would be able to. The main gate of the hospital was open, but for the last uh, 72 hours, nobody was allowed out, in or out. So everybody in the hospital now are staying there for the last three days. Since uh, uh, three days, nobody was allowed to go in and out of the hospital. We was in uh, like contact all the time with the some medical stuff inside and our witness who, who was by the way the last journalist uh, operating from the hospital uh, they said nobody was allowed in and out for the last three days and today about 2 30 in the morning tanks moved and soldiers started to search what he told me now is that they are searching uh, from room to room uh, they finished the ground floor and they started in the second floor where he is now uh, locating in the second floor of the of the hospital, and uh, they said they they investigate, uh, they talk to like you know interrogate the people, uh, uh, the medical staff and the patient inside, and the people who were like civilians displaced, they interrogate them outside within the uh, car park and the courtyard of the hospital. That's important for us to know, just from a sort of basic humanitarian perspective. I mean, w- w- we need to know what these people are going through. And I mean, it-, it should be obvious to anyone that it's completely awful and Israel's actions here are completely unjustifiable. It also matters legally, right? That was important information because international humanitarian law requires the protection of civilians during hostilities, including by allowing them to escape military targets. Instead, the IDF seemed to have been shooting those trying to flee in the legs. Al-Shifa is now under a communications blackout with the World Health Organization saying they've lost lost contact with medical staff inside. But emergency room employee Omar Zakwat managed to tell Al Jazeera this. They've detained and brutally assaulted some of the men who were taking refuge at the hospital. Israeli forces took the detained men naked and blindfolded. They did not bring any aid or supplies. They only brought terror and death. More than 180 bodies Dead bodies are deteriorating and still lying in the hospital's yard. The situation is very terrifying. Gunshots are heard everywhere in the hospital's perimeters. Israel's justification for targeting the hospital is that Hamas is using it as a base. So far, they've produced no evidence for this claim. However, I am confident that at some point we will be seeing footage from tunnels under the hospital. Why, you ask? Well, because Israel built them itself. Now, Israel last invaded Gaza in 2014. That same year, an article in the Tablet magazine reported this. The Israelis are so sure about the location of the Hamas bunker, however, not because they are trying to score propaganda points or because it has been repeatedly mentioned in passing by Western reporters, but because they built it. Back in 1983, when Israel still ruled Gaza, they built a secure underground operating room and tunnel network beneath Shifa Hospital, which is one among several reasons why Israeli security sources are so sure that there is a main Hamas command bunker in or around the large cement basement beneath the area of Building 2 of the hospital, which reporters are obviously prohibited from entering. It was discussed on yesterday's show. We've seen these videos where you get this IDF 
soldier showing gullible journalists around some building that they sell some room that they say sort of oh because because of this calendar on the wall it means that hostages were were held here and that this is a a headquarters for for Hamas we don't know what's the case but if you see some tunnels under Shifa hospital that doesn't mean it's Hamas headquarters because Israel built them right now also in 2014, Israel launched an attack on the Al-Shifa hospital, again using the presence of a Hamas base as the justification. Um, they later changed their mind. Now, this is from the academic journal International Review of the Red Cross. Israel justified its attack on Al-Shifa hospital by claiming that Hamas had established a, quote, large underground bunker equipped with sophisticated communications equipment, un unquote, underneath the hospital, which would qualify as an act harmful to the enemy. The same day, one hour after Al-Shifa was attacked, another strike landed near the hospital and hit Al-Shati refugee camp. This strike killed 10 Palestinians, nine of them children. Israel denied responsibility for the attack and instead blamed the attack on Hamas. The IDF re later released a statement saying this, quote, Al-Shifa hospital was struck by a failed rocket attack launched by Gaza terror organizations. A barrage of free rockets that were aimed towards Israel struck the hospital at the time of the incident, there were no Israeli military activity in the area surrounding the hospital whatsoever. So we have a situation where Israel said they would attack a hospital, a strike, then lands near a hospital and kills a number of civilians. Then Israel says the attack was in fact Hamas. Now, this might all sound rather familiar to you. Okay, we've seen this before. Now, back to the present moment, neither side has presented conclusive proof as to whether Hamas do use hospitals as bases, but medical staff do appear sceptical. Now, NHS surgeon Abdel Hamad has worked at the Al-Shifa hospital. He told Sky News this. Israel say that they are carrying out this targeted, in their words, operation because Hamas is using this hospital as a base. What, what's your response to that? I mean, I know that building, which they are occupying at the moment and, and searching. And to be, to be honest, I mean, I've been to all parts of that building. I never seen a military situation in that building. And what surprised me, even the building, everywhere in the building is accessible to people. I mean, to the public, to the medics, uh, to patients. So I'd be surprised really what they are saying, because, uh, I mean, if it is a center for Hamas, they would have not uh, uh, allowed people to have access to that. But people have access to all sides of that building. And I think the, the problem now is the hospital is non-operational. The patients are, I don't know what will happen to the patients, and the medical staff is uh, obviously in this situation, which I am worried about their safety. A senior member of the IDF has now said that weapons and, quote, terror infrastructure have been found at the hospital, though without providing any evidence. But whatever the situation with any bunker now, there are thousands of civilians currently sheltering in Al-Shifa with no access to the outside world and no international monitors to ensure their safety, which means international condemnation of the attack has been plentiful. This is from Doctors Without Borders. As Israeli forces enter Al-Shifa hospital, we call once again for the protection of medical staff, patients and displaced civilians sheltered inside the hospital. We are extremely worried for their lives. UN aid chief Martin Griffiths said this, 
I'm appalled by reports of military raids in Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza. The protection of newborns, patients, medical staff and all civilians must override all other concerns. Hospitals are not battlegrounds. Now, as I say, I think we should be very sceptical about Israeli claims about where Hamas are and are not based. At the same time, you know, as I say, conclusive proof hasn't been provided either way. I don't know what Israel are going to present to the world over the next couple of days. I think what's very important to keep in mind, though, you know, because I am nervous about you know them finding something and saying, aha, we were, we were justified, therefore, in bombing this hospital and bombing all the hospitals in Gaza, which I think is going to be the message coming from IDF and their outriders, right? Whatever is underneath a hospital, that doesn't give you the right to bomb it and cause a shed loads of death inside, right? As we've described, humanitarian law means you have to be able to provide people safe passage out of that place. They haven't done that. And this has to be proportionate. I was saying this on the radio yesterday, right? If there is a claim that Israel has a, a right to sort of bomb civilian infrastructure because that civilian infrastructure is protecting Hamas infrastructure or military infrastructure, then uh, they have to be arguing that 50% of civilian infrastructure in Gaza is hiding military infrastructure. Now, that's completely implausible, right? You would need a huge army for that to be the case. You would need a, you know, an enormous cache of weapons for that to be the case. Now, Hamas is, you know, it's, it, 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 it has proven to be more of a threat than people thought it was before October the 7th. But it's not going to have a military headquarters under 50% of the buildings in Gaza. It doesn't make any sense. It's completely, completely implausible. So there is no way that you can possibly say that this is proportionate and this is targeted when they have destroyed half of Gaza. Now, to me, as we were saying in the first segment, this seems more like a plan to make Gaza unlivable. And obviously, if you're trying to make a territory unlivable, going for the hospitals makes a lot of sense, right? If you were trying to, in a sort of targeted way, take out a terrorist group, then bombing 50% of the buildings in a territory and bombing pretty much all of its hospitals, right? That wouldn't make much sense. It does make sense if what you're trying to do is create a humanitarian crisis and then sort of blackmail the rest of the world to say, oh, you know, we're not expelling Gazans, but we, we, we were forced to create this humanitarian crisis because of Hamas, by the way, all Hamas's fault. But we, we created this humanitarian crisis and now it's so desperate um, that unfortunately, um, the 2.2 million inhabitants of Gaza are going to have to leave. Now, whenever this sort of hospital issue has come up and people say, is there, a, is there are Hamas in a bunker, are Hamas aren't in a bunker, you need to make sure that you have in your head the big picture here, which is, this is not a targeted strike. Israel has destroyed Gaza. It's continuing to destroy Gaza. And if you listen to the words of their own politicians, the reason is not to take out a terrorist group. It's to make Gaza unlivable. I think the reason why uh, these kinds of moments, the Al-Shifa um, hospital uh, sort of storming, the Al-Ahli hospital bombing, the bombing of the um, refugee camp in Gaza that we saw recently too. Why these moments provoke and attract so much um, sort of attention in the kind of uh, news coverage of this war is because they uh, they expose the sort of 
Jainist-faced way in which Israel is uh, is talking about the war, the way that it's talking about it internally, and the way that it's talking about it to the rest of the world. Now, to the rest of the world, Israel is saying we're we're undertaking this war to um, to sort of rout Hamas, and we need to totally destroy Hamas in order to guarantee Israel's security and the prevention of further attacks like Operation Al-Aqsa Flood on the 7th of October. But internally, and, you know, in a sort of stage whisper, you might say, because you've quoted some of the things that they've been they've been saying um, to a sort of domestic audience, that they're they're talking about a second Nakba. <laughs> they're talking about depopulation, raising Gaza, making it uninhabitable. Um, and and moments like this, uh, this uh, at this hospital um, invasion sort of demonstrate the sort of untenability of these two positions because they're not, as you say, making the kinds of provisions that uh, um, uh, an aggressor would make in order to protect civilians and only target Hamas. They're making the kind of uh, moves that uh, that a, a military would make in order to uh, you know, uh, destroy an entire civilian infrastructure and make Gaza uninhabitable, as you've said. We know that that is Israel's ultimate aim here and, and Israel's ultimate conception of Palestinians. There are no Palestinian innocent civilians. That's what President um, Isaac Herzog recently told journalists. It's an entire population, he said. It's an entire nation out there that's responsible, he said, on the 13th of October, you know, an entire month ago, ago now. Um, and so, you know, internally, it's the, the numbers that Israel's presenting to its own, own population, um, it, the total number of people that it's killed, it describes as terrorists. Now, that includes children who've died, non-combatants who've died. You know, Israel sees them all as part of the same um, sort of uh, Hamas-supporting polis and obviously synonymizes Hamas with ISIS and all sorts of insane conflations that we, that we don't need to go into. But I think what we see in, in, in moments like this Al-Shifa hospital storming is that Israel isn't trying to Israel isn't trying to distinguish between civilians and Hamas operatives, and 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 it's struggling to maintain that sort of outward um, sort of line by constantly shifting its justification. You know, yesterday we saw the White House saying that it had independent intelligence to suggest that Hamas was using Al Shifa as a a base for, for for holding hostages. Today, the IDF completely gave up that line and just said, "Nah, wasn't about." hostages. Yes, maybe there were some tunnels or bases or whatever, but hostages, no. And so the reason why these justifications keep shifting and Israel keeps trying to kind of pump out more and more absurd propaganda of its, you know, soldiers, uh, you know, I've, we saw recently that timetable of supposed, um, you know, Hamas operatives taking it in turns to um, to man a, a base in a hospital. We've seen an Israeli actress brought in to um, supposedly like impersonate uh, um, a Gazan uh, hospital employee. Um, so Israel will continue to pump out this kind of more and more absurd propaganda to try and justify its actions on some kind of um, humanitarian basis to appeal to a certain type of um, supposed liberal democracy like the US and the UK, whilst internally making absolutely no bones about the fact that all 
Gazans, all Palestinians are the target and hospitals are completely legitimate targets. I think we saw a tweet saying something um, along those lines deleted by um, Israel recently saying that hospitals are legitimate targets. So it's constantly trying to kind of... um, you know, manage this inherent tension between what it's saying, uh, I suppose, to the West and what it's saying internally. And and at these moments, that tension can't really hold. Attacking hospitals, of course, isn't a great look for Israel, right? But condemnation from their allies has been incredibly tepid, incredibly tepid. Now, Joe Biden has said the Shiva hospital should be protected, but he's only demanded, quote, less intrusive action at the hospital. So less intrusive, right? Now, He doesn't seem to want to keep the hospital completely out of the war, just less intrusive action than they've done elsewhere. I don't know what that means. You've seen the images which show that it looks pretty goddamn intrusive what the Israelis are doing there. Crucially, because words are just words, right? The Americans have given no indication they will condition Israeli aid, including vast amounts of weaponry, on whether or not Israel destroys health facilities, right? it's all very well to say, oh, we'd like you to do this in a more civilized way. But if you are arming them, if you are giving them that the funds they need to do that, and crucially the diplomatic support which enables this, then those words mean nothing. And even in the realm of words, right, America took a very different turn, or tone, sorry, when it was Russia doing the bombing. In March 2022, Hillary Clinton tweeted this, if Russian leadership would rather not be accused of committing war crimes, they should stop bombing hospitals. Right on, Hillary Clinton, right on. Now, in contrast in this war, Hillary Clinton has this week written an article for The Atlantic opposing a ceasefire in Gaza. So when it was Russia, she wasn't interested, you know, any any sort of Putin explanation, oh, they've been using the hospital as a, as a, as a military um, base, you know, they, they've been fighting from the hospital. Hillary Clinton said, well, if you, if, you don't want to be, if you don't want to be accused of anything, just stop bombing the hospital. Now, when Israel makes that excuse, oh, suddenly it's valid. Take a look at what the current Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, thought about the bombing of hospitals when it was Russia doing it. We can never let the crimes Russia's committing become our new normal. Bucha is not normal. Mariupol is not normal. Irpin is not normal. Bombing schools and hospitals and apartment buildings to rubble is not normal. It's not normal. Bombing hospitals is not normal. Well, you have made it normal, right? The United States has made that normal. In Russia, they try, they try to gather the whole world and say, this is unacceptable, we can't make this normal. All of you have got to sanction Russia. Now, I've got no problem with sanctions on Russia. right? But when it comes to Israel, the US don't just say, oh, actually, we're going to ignore this one. The US provide Israel with all the diplomatic cover they need to get away with this. So whenever anything comes to the UN Security Council, it is the US who veto it if it's criticizing Israel. So when it came to, to Russia, we can't make this stuff normal. They are making this stuff normal every day, right? Mariupol. Gaza City. The comparisons are strong. One of them, the America found that outrageous. The other, America is backing Israel to the hilt. We've got to go on to our next story. The Supreme Court has ruled that the Tories' Rwanda plan is unlawful. The judgment is based on concerns the court had over the safety of Rwanda as a destination for asylum seekers. At a press conference this afternoon, Rishi Sunak gave this response to the ruling. We have prepared for all outcomes of this case. And so we have been working on a new international treaty with Rwanda. This will provide a guarantee in law that those who are relocated from the UK to Rwanda will be protected against removal from Rwanda. And it will make clear that we will bring back anyone if ordered to do so by a court. 
We will finalize the treaty in light of today's judgment and ratify it without delay. But we need to end the merry-go-round. I said I was going to fundamentally change our country, and I meant it. So I'm also announcing today that we will take the extraordinary step of introducing emergency legislation. This will enable Parliament to confirm that with our new treaty, Rwanda is safe. It will ensure that people cannot further delay flights by bringing systemic challenges in our domestic courts and stop our policy being repeatedly blocked. Now, that reference to emergency legislation is a way of bypassing the courts. Now, in their unanimous judgment, the Supreme Court said that asylum seekers could not legally be sent to Rwanda because of the risk of refoulement. Now, refoulement is the forcible return of asylum seekers to their country of origin when there is a risk of persecution. And it's illegal under both European and other international law. Now, the court's conclusion was based on Rwanda's record of wrongly rejecting refugees from war zones like Syria, Yemen, and Afghanistan, as well as its mistreatment of refugees already in Rwanda. Sunak wants to get around this by signing a new treaty with Rwanda and then getting parliament rather than the courts to declare it to be safe. So essentially saying, well, the courts don't say it's safe. Well, well, parliament will then say it's safe. If you disagree with me, I will make new facts. But Sunak also went further. We must be honest about the fact that even once Parliament has changed the law here at home, we could still face challenges from the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. I told Parliament earlier today that I'm prepared to change our laws and revisit those international relationships to remove the obstacles in our way. So let me tell everybody now, I will not allow a foreign court to block these flights. If the Strasbourg court chooses to intervene against the expressed wishes of Parliament, I am prepared to do what is necessary to get flights off. I will not take the easy way out, because I fundamentally do not believe that anyone thinks the founding aims of the European Convention on Human Rights was to stop a sovereign Parliament removing illegal migrants to a country deemed to be safe in parliamentary statute and binding international law. The Supreme Court judgment explicitly said it wasn't relying on the European Convention of Human Rights when it made its ruling. That's because they say other treaties like the Geneva Convention on Refugees, which is enshrined in multiple domestic laws, would still make the scheme illegal. Right? So they're saying it's not actually about the European Convention. So why is Sunak bringing it up? Well, he'll be hoping that will appease some of his right-wing MPs. Now, this was, well, they're all quite right-wing, aren't they? But they're far-right MPs. This was Jacob Rees-Mogg earlier today on GB News. There are a lot of people um, in Parliament who are very committed to the European Convention on Human Rights and quite a few in the Conservative Party. So then the question becomes, can you get a parliamentary majority for this? And I think you could get a parliamentary majority, not for withdrawing from the convention, but from doing what we did with prisoner voting rights and overriding it for a period in these specific circumstances. I think there is a majority in the Commons for that. And ultimately, the Lords must give in to the Democratic House. On Politics Live, Tory MP Jonathan Gullis went even further saying this. We've got some ideas. Number one is that Danny Kruger, Bill Cash and myself did put forward a notwithstanding uh, amendment to the Illegal Migration Act before obviously it passed through the House of Commons. The Prime Minister could bring forward a notwithstanding bill to disapply all treaties and conventions that were all signed All of them, so not, not just the European Convention well, on Human Rights well, that you've talked about. 
Yes, Lord we heard Reed, that. Lord absolutely. Reed referred to obviously the European, uh, the UN uh, signatories as well, like the Refugee Convention of 1951. Ah. Another idea is that we actually use the powers in the Nationality and Borders Act to push back, literally push back boats as they're crossing the channel in or into French territorial waters. I would personally have no issue with us actually taking people back to French shores immediately. Well, you know, of course, that's been tried. That's been tried by Suella Bravman, in fact, and Pretty Patel, and, and the, it was dropped. But ultimately, the government has to now, in my opinion, go into a deep, full review of all our obligations under international treaties and convention because the sovereignty of our country should not be in question. Now, that view aligns with the view of the former Home Secretary. Around half an hour before Sunak's press conference, Suella Braverman said this, Today's Supreme Court judgment is no surprise. It was predicted by a number of people close to the process. Given the current state of the law, there is no reason to criticise the judges. Instead, the government must introduce emergency legislation. The bill must block off the European Convention, the Human Rights Act and other roots of legal challenge. This will give Parliament a clear choice, control illegal migration or explain to the British people why they should accept ever greater numbers of illegal arrivals settling here. Now, one thing that the Supreme Court's judgment doesn't undermine is the principle of outsourcing asylum to a third country. So an alternative plan would also be to find another third country to make a deal with. But whether Sunak does that or pursues a new Rwanda treaty, it's likely to lead to further appeals and lengthy delays on policy that's already cost hundreds of millions of pounds. And some Tories have had enough. Natalie Elphick is usually a fairly right-wing Tory, but she's also MP for Dover, a constituency in which many small boats come ashore. She made this suggestion on Sky News. I think we need to move forward and look at all the other measures that can come forward to help stop the small boats. You know, there have been a huge amount of other steps and other work that has been undertaken over the last couple of years. And that's had real results on the ground. We've heard this third down on numbers of arrivals in small boats. That's around 14,500 people. That's really a, quite a marked change. So we need to look at what works. We need to be practical and we need to stop those boats leaving France in the first place. Some of your colleagues are calling for the UK to pull out of the European Convention on Human Rights. They think that could stop this policy of being snarled up in the courts. Do you agree with them? The Supreme Court decision wasn't a decision of the uh, European Court. It wasn't some Strasbourg judge uh, somewhere far away. It was the most senior of the judges in our land, and their position was absolutely clear. We need to respect that. The court did say that the agreement in principle of outsourcing um, wasn't the issue. It was particularly issues around Rwanda. But I think we need to move forward from Rwanda. The planes are not going in the air anytime soon, or perhaps at all. But the small boats crossings continue and that's where the government's focus must be. Tories still committed to the Rwanda plan have taken aim at the Supreme Court itself. Brendan Clark Smith posted this, we've been here before and then that infamous enemies of the people front page. But one Tory lawmaker had a truly revolutionary idea. The Times' Aubrey Allegretti reported this. Lee Anderson says ministers should go ahead and put planes in the air to Rwanda anyway. When I asked if he was suggesting ignoring the Supreme Court ruling, the Tory deputy chairman said government should ignore the laws and send them straight back. Um, so one solution is just to completely ignore the law, um, which could have some implications Lee Anderson doesn't expect, but we'll see. I mean, Suella Braverman says it all in the start of her tweet thread. This was inevitable. You know, ministers... Pretty Patel and Boris Johnson, when it was them, and now Rishi Sunak and Suella Braverman, have been warned for the past year and a half that the Rwanda plan 
isn't workable. It doesn't even, it won't even act as an effective deterrent. But this is the problem. When I see sort of, um, you know, liberal commentators like wringing their hands over the, the Rwanda plan being battered about in the cause, I just think this was always the point. The point was to set up a fight between the courts, between the leg- between the uh, judiciary and the executive. This is pure political theatre, uh, a way of sort of creating this shadow boxing match, which doesn't exist between Strasbourg and London. We know from the ruling that it's not the European um, Court of Human Rights that is the thing that is constraining the Rwanda plan, the UN Convention on Refugees, the UN Convention Against Torture, these things would all have prevented the plan from going ahead, even if the ECHR uh, wasn't didn't exist. <laughs> so the idea that this is some uh, sort of, you know, this is an attempt by Europe to uh, constrain UK parliamentary sovereignty is just, is just, you know, entirely uh, false and like designed to sort of feed the Tory base just in the same way that all the small boat crossings are designed to feed the Tory base just in the same way that the Tories have never intended to genuinely tackle um you know illegal immigration or the problem quote unquote of small boats uh, because it's 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 fantastic telly for for GB news and and right wing media um and the Tory voters that watch it i think though this is obviously a hugely concerning um, shadow boxing match even if it is a false one you know we've had the cross-party legal charity justice warning that the UK, the UK's commitment to the rule of law is under threat because of everything from cuts to legal aid to the kind of poor public consultations such as the one that we saw over the uh, Illegal Migration Act, um, all the way through to the kind of extreme and repeated and excessive use of what are known as Henry VIII powers, which we saw with the, the Brexit Act. You know, we are seeing a major challenge to the legitimacy of our legislature. And again, I would draw really obvious parallels between the UK and, for example, Israel. What was Netanyahu battling just before the uh, the war in Gaza broke out? He was battling resistance to his attempted reforms to the Supreme Court. What has uh, Hungary recently done, attempted to reform its Supreme Court? Poland, exactly the same. You know, we are seeing a massive resistance in right-wing and far-right uh, governments across Europe to the authority of the legislature, which is which is made out as being this kind of um, threat to the sovereignty of the people. When in fact, we know that the ECHR, for example, is the reason why we don't have corporal punishment in schools anymore. The reason why we have protections for LGBT people. The reason why the state can't tap our phones. The reason why we don't have inhumanely long detention periods for people arrested on terrorism charges. You know, the, the courts are there to protect us from our, you know, increasingly flagrantly sort of unhinged politicians, people like Lee Anderson, who would just put someone on a plane regardless of their, um, you know, uh, eligibility to remain in the UK. The courts protect our sovereignty rather than attack them. And we've, we've, but we've got to a place now where, where our politicians have successfully managed to demonize the courts. And we know where this leads because it happened in 2020. There are direct attacks on judges, direct attacks on, on lawyers. That happened in 2020 when Duncan Lewis, an immigration law firm, um, you know, was the subject of a terrorist attack. So, you know, when Brendan Clark Smith is is sharing, uh, resharing that headline from the Daily Mail or wherever it was, you know, 
that's incitement. You know, that, that is directly uh, going to trigger, going to embolden people on the far right, you know, people that we saw at the Senate half at the weekend and people will see more and more of in the coming months to go and attack judges and lawyers and people in the legal profession. It's as simple as that. It's a deeply scary moment. So next story now. Francesca Albanese is the UN Special Rapporteur on the Occupied Palestinian Territories, and she has recently given a speech to the Australian Press Club. In the question and answers session, a Guardian journalist named Daniel Hurst asked her this. I couldn't help but being tripped up by the very ending of your speech where you said that ending Jewish-Israeli domination would be rehumanizing acts for them as well. I just want to ask whether that sort of comment is helpful in the current climate, talking about ending Jewish-Israeli domination. You've applied it to that particular context, but you don't think the word domination has a, a wider connotation outside that context. What do you mean? I, talking about Israeli-Jewish domination. Meaning, are you asking me uh, in Israel? Well, I, would, I, I, I just, the phrase jumped out at me at the end of your speech, and I'm just wondering if the, the trope of domination... Uh, no, it's not a trope. It's really real. So it seems not to understand what I'm saying. There is an apartheid regime. No, I'm serious. There is an apartheid regime. It's domination. This is not a trope. This is international law. I encourage you to read the apartheid convention because it talks about racial domination. And this is what I'm talking about. It might be a trope into your, sorry, into the way you interpret it. But I'm using domination in a strictly legal sense. Thank you very much for your questions. I mean, he had no follow-up, did he? I mean, he was he was very much put in his place. And how embarrassing! You know, you, 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 there is a there is a, a horrific war on Gaza. You are speaking to the UN Special Rapporteur on Palestinians, and or you can go, oh, I heard you say domination. Oh, that sounds a bit dodgy. I know anti-Semitism is in the news at the moment. Do you feel bad that you said domination? Do you think that could be a trope? Like, no. This is what a ridiculous question. And she put him down so effectively. And she was absolutely right to. Now, as she said, racial domination isn't a trope. It's a legal term included within the 1975 UN Convention on Apartheid. Now, this is the relevant passage. For the purpose of the present convention, the term the crime of apartheid, which shall include similar policies and practices of racial segregation and discrimination as practiced in South, Southern Africa, shall apply to the following inhuman acts committed for the purpose of establishing and maintaining domination by one racial group of persons over any other racial group of persons and systematically oppressing them. Now, the convention then lists a number of actions which are understood to promote racial domination. We also know that the crime of intentional and systematic racial domination is being committed by Israel. Now, this is the front cover of the 2022 Amnesty Report, which judged Israel to be guilty of apartheid. So you can see there, Israel's apartheid against Palestinians, cruel system of domination and crime against humanity. So you're going to, you've got the Guardian journalist who opens that and think, oh, Israel committing apartheid against Palestinians. That sounds kind of boring. Oh, but I can see the word domination. Oh, and we're talking about Israel. Ooh. Oh, there could be a headline there. That sounds very interesting. Someone said, someone from the UN said that Israel might be dominating another racial group, that Jews in Israel are dominating another racial group. Now, as the UN rapporteur said, that's not a trope. That's what's happening, right? It's, it's material. This is not just in the realms of discourse. There is discrimination and domination of people in Israel because they are not Jews, right? Jews in, in Israel, it is a racial group. There is racial domination between Jews and non-Jews in Israel. Rivka, this idea that sort of just anything is a trope, 
right? Powerful Jews is a trope, so you can't talk about how Jews have power in Israel. You know, it's, it, 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 it's like if, if you were to talk about South African apartheid without being able to say that white people have more power in South Africa than everyone else. Right. And I mean, obviously, this environment in which it's impossible to speak about uh, Israeli Jewish domination. Albanese was incredibly precise with her language. She didn't just say Jewish. It was Hearst who abstracted the idea um, of Jews per se from what she was saying. So in a way, it's Hearst's own unconscious anti-Semitic biases that we should be questioning. But, you know, th this idea that it's impossible to critique Israeli Jewish domination without being accused of anti-Semitism is a situation that obviously Israel has constructed quite deliberately to insulate itself from criticism. Uh, you know, it's it's also so evidently not a trope. It's enshrined in Israeli law. You know, the 2018 nation state law literally says that the right to exercise national self-determination in the state of Israel is unique to Jewish people. Only Jewish people have the right to self-determine in, in the state of Israel. And, and Jewish domination is inscribed in, in Israeli law. It's inscribed in the convention of the ruling party of Bibi's uh, Likud party, that between the river and the sea, there will be only Israeli Jewish sovereignty. <laughs> uh, coincidentally rhymes. Perhaps they should be using it as their chance on, on, their, march, on their marches. This idea that we uh, that that Hearst is kind of suggesting, and and I think the kind of interaction that you see between them shows how deeply removed journalists' understanding of the situation is from the material reality. We're continually told, you know, criticism of Israel is legitimate if it's well informed, if it's reasonable. There is no one, perhaps, on this planet uh, who knows more about the situation on the ground than Francesca Albanese at this moment. She is the UN Special Rapporteur on the occupied territories. She knows so much about the kind of uh, regime of racial domination that Israel is maintaining. And yet, when she attempts to speak about it, she's still smeared as anti-Semitic. You know, it shows how impossible uh, the discourse around um, Israeli policy, even when it's forensically detailed, even when it's extremely well-informed and highly specific in its language, Israeli Jews, not Jews per se, you know, it's impossible to launch any criticism of, of Israel in this environment, you know, in a Western media environment that extends clearly not just from the UK to the US, but all the way to Australia. We are going to now go over to the House of Commons. Um, MPs have just voted on the Labour amendment. Um, so that was the amendment from, from, from the front bench, the, the mealy-mouthed one um, that I was telling you about. They want to ceasefire at some point in the future when it's possible, you know, the, 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 the Starmer motion that was terrible, essentially. Um, so we will get a result on that very soon. Um, in the meantime, we know that Yasmin Qureshi has resigned as Shadow Women and Equalities Minister. Um, that makes her the second shadow frontbencher to resign over the issue after Imran Hussain last week. And we can expect, of course, sackings from the other MPs who have publicly stated they will defy Starmer today. Um, Ripper, I want some of your thoughts on this. What should our viewers be looking out for when we get these results? What kind of number might Keir Starmer be comfortable with when it comes to, to uh, the rebels from his own party? I mean, it's been suggested that around a dozen maybe up to even 15 could rebel. Um, and these are, you know, many of these are um, 
not MPs traditionally thought to be on the left. People like Jess Phillips and Kim Ledbetter um, are considered, or, well, I suppose Kim Ledbetter is part of the socialist campaign group, but others such as Sarah Owen or Paul Bar- Paula Barker, you know, not people that we traditionally associate with the left and certainly not members of the um, socialist campaign group within the party are, are thought to be potential defectors. One of the central kind of themes and commonalities that a lot of these um, rumoured defectors share is that they sit in constituencies with large Muslim populations. So, for example, Sarah Owen um, is uh, MP for Luton with uh, a constituent which has a population, a Muslim population of about 48%. That's enormous. You know, in London, it's about thir- uh, 15%, I believe. Um, but, you know, other other MPs like Jess Phillips, who, like I said, is traditionally thought to be more in the kind of centre of the party, if not the centre-right, um, particularly on her views around things like gender and women and trans rights um, sits in Birmingham Yardley, which has a 30% Muslim population. Um, now I'm saying this partly yeah. because... Oh, we've got, I'm just going to interrupt you because we are just going to go to the House of Commons. Now remember, this is the results for the Labour front bench amendment. Thank you. The eyes to the right, 183. The nose to the left, 290. So the nose have it. The no's have it. Unlock. I am anticipating three more divisions. So MPs have voted against the Labour front bench amendment. Now, in a way, that's a relief. There was there was some discussion earlier today from sort of political journalists that maybe um, the Tories would vote for the Labour front bench amendment, which would mean that we wouldn't have any votes on the SNP amendment because they would be superseded. I never really understood why they would do that because the Tories love seeing the Labour Party divided. So we are going to see a, a vote on those meaningful ceasefire amendments, not Labour's, the, the Labour front bench's sort of pointless um, ceasefire amendment. Um, so we still have that to look forward to. Um, Rivka, when it comes to sort of the results we're going to see, um how would you judge what's going to be most important in terms of how Labour MPs vote? Do you think this is about principle? Do you think it's a sort of left wing of the party versus the right wing of the party? Do you think it's about the demographics of people's constituencies? Do you think it's how much pressure, how many emails they've received? I mean, what do you think is is going through the minds of people who are deciding whether or not to vote with the leadership? I think it's the recognition uh, that, well, I think obviously there is some cynicism at play. And, you know, we have some MPs who are both principled, but also sitting in incredibly precarious positions. People like Kim Ledbetter, who won in uh, 2021 by a margin of something like 300, 320 people. So obviously there are considerations about uh, about one's safety in one seat. And I, I, I'm not suggesting that that's um, not at play, but I do think that there's a recognition, a growing recognition precipitated by the, you know, enormous mass movements that we've seen, hundreds of thousands of people, almost a million people last weekend just in London, across the country, it's probably over a million people that have um, come out in support for Palestine, you know, including some of these constituencies like Birmingham, um, that, that, you know, that has, I think, 
brought home to MPs that this is uh, an extra um, parliamentary, this, this, this is of extra parliamentary significance. You know, I think often there's a tendency within the Labour Party to be quite kind of navel gazing and inward looking and think about things in terms of the, the internal politics of the party. But I think, you know, the, the uh, positions, the, the, the sort of seeming um, moves towards backing a ceasefire of people like Jess Phillips suggests to me a recognition that this is about more than internal Labour Party politics. And this is uh, a moment which, you know, which we can't come back from. You know, Gaza is not, the, you know, this is, this is a moment of no return. I think, you know, you were saying this earlier, the longer that Israel, the longer that there isn't a ceasefire, the more likely it becomes that there will not be a, a return of Palestinians to Gaza, that it will become a kind of uh, dead zone under some kind of either Israeli control or international control with, you know, there's been talks of um, Israel either uh, reducing the territory of Gaza, suggesting that some of it might be annexed or kind of maintaining a sort of security control over it. This is an enormously uh, pivotal moment in the history of this conflict and, and a sort of Rubicon, I think, that Labour MPs have, some Labour MPs have recognized is more important than, than a party whip, more important than their positions um, on a shadow front bench. You know, I think things in uh, Gaza are moving so rapidly that Labour's own position on this between now and the next general election, which could be in, you know, more than a year's time, could well change. The US's position could well change. And, you know, the, the sooner MPs make their uh, principled stances clear, you know, Naz, Naz Shah saying that a ceasefire is going to happen sooner rather than later. Well, you might as well back one now. You know, if it emerges in a year's time that Labour is going to back a ceasefire or hopefully in, in, in sooner than a year, those MPs who maybe lost their uh, positions on the front bench could well be in the running for a job in government nevertheless. So I think there's maybe a recognition even amongst the, the sort of more uh, ruthlessly ambitious Labour MPs that this is going to be so much bigger than this than this particular moment. And it, it's simply not worth um, sort of following the party whip on like at this time, because, not least because Labour is so prone to U-turning but how do we know that it's not going to support a ceasefire in a week's time anyway, leaving those those who voted, you know, for a ceasefire vindicated and those who voted against it sort of none the none the more stable in their jobs, if you see what I mean. Let's look at one of the absolute worst people in the Labour Party, Luke Akehurst. Um, so he's on the NEC, on the National Executive Committee. Um, he is also director of a lobby group, We Believe in Israel. Um, and he had a response to the parliamentary debate today that I, I want to get your thoughts on, Rivka. So he says, there's a certain post-colonial arrogance to British MPs thinking they can tell the elected government of another democracy that it has to stop fighting to defend its people after the worst terrorist atrocities since 9-11 the former mandatory power, should stay in its lane. Whatever you think about the whole one-state, two-state question, now, as I often explain on this show, people who are in favour of sort of like a one-state solution, they say the occupation of Palestine began um, 75 years ago. Um, the whole thing is illegitimate. Now, people who are more two-staters say, well, the UN in 1948 did um, give... Israel a mandate to be on sort of half the land of historic Palestine. So in that part of historic Palestine, it's not an occupation. But in the parts they occupied after the 1976 war, 1967, sorry, I always get that wrong, the 1967 war, everyone agrees that is an occupation. Everyone agrees that the West Bank 
is occupied and it's being colonized, right? Because you have settlers moving in there. You've got half a million settlers who are living on land, which the whole world recognizes as part of Israel. And still, Luke Akehurst, right, who's not just some internet troll, he is on Labour's National Executive Committee, thinks that it is post-colonial arrogance to ask Israel, which has been occupying Palestine for 56 years, to stop bombing Palestinian hospitals. I'm surprised that Luke Akehurst even knows the word post-colonial, if I'm honest. I mean, like, he should stay in his lane. If he thinks that it's arrogant for people of conscience to speak out against, uh, you know, the raising of Gaza, then why is he doing exactly the same just on Israel's behalf? You know, I don't think it's wrong that he should do that. <laughs> I think it's absolutely, you know, understandable that he should. I think he's a weird guy who has, like, an obsession with, you know, framing himself as the, uh, you know, hero of, of of the Jews, the savior of the Jews. Um, but I, I think he's within his rights to have his views on on uh, Israel and Palestine. And he, he probably does so in part because of Britain's very involved relationship with Palestine and the foundation of the state of Israel, which I think is why a lot of people in this country uh, feel, you know, um, like Britain has a particular responsibility. You know, in some ways, I agree with Germany saying that it has a particular historic responsibility towards Israel. I just disagree what that responsibility is. I think Britain shares that responsibility, having previously had a mandate over uh, Palestine and being instrumental in creating Israel through the Balfour Declaration, which, by the way, the only Jewish uh, minister in Arthur Balfour's cabinet, whose name I've momentarily forgotten, voted against, saying he didn't think that there was such a thing as a Jewish nation. Anyway, that episode of history is is often uh, forgotten. But, um, you know, it, it, it's outrageous. But it's, what's interesting is that Luke Akehurst is, is recognizing, even that by using the term post-colonial, that we're in a colonial occupation that we that it, that one is ongoing and that acknowledgement is exactly why so many people care about it you know there's there's so few there's virtually no comparable uh situations in in the world right now so some would say west papua um has some uh you know echoes with what's going on in in palestine but there's you know Colonization, for the most part, ended in the late 20th century, uh, at the mid to late 20th century. And, and Israel and Palestine is a, a, a massive hangover um, of that and an exception globally. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an apartheid state of the like that we haven't seen since, uh, since South Africa. So, you know, it's totally, totally understandable uh, that people would care about this. And the reasons they do it are embedded within Luke Akers' tweet. We've got a couple more updates before those final votes come in. Um, so some resignations. Paula Barker, Shadow Minister for Devolution. She's resigned, um, I think, from the Liverpool area. Um, Afzal Khan has resigned as well. He was Shadow sorry, shadow Minister for Devolution and then Afzal Khan, Shadow Minister for Exports. Um, someone who isn't resigning, um, who we have discussed this evening, is Kim Ledbetter. Now, she's released a video explaining her decision. Hello, I'm Kim Ledbeater, the Member of Parliament for Batley and Spen, and I just wanted to send out a short message ahead of the vote in Parliament this evening, which sets out my position clearly. Of course, I want a ceasefire in Gaza, which human being on this planet wouldn't. But what I won't be doing this evening is voting for the SNP amendment. And the reason I won't be doing that is because even if I did, nothing would change. There is no quick and simple solution to the crisis in Gaza. We have to set out a framework which leads towards that much needed ceasefire. And I believe that's what the Labour Party amendment does. 
This has probably been the hardest day of my relatively short political career, but that is nothing compared to the pain and suffering of the people involved in the attack on October the 7th and the suffering now that we're seeing in Gaza. We have to work towards a solution to alleviating that pain for, alleviating that pain for everybody, releasing the hostages, getting rid of Hamas, and ending the pain and suffering of the people of that region who have suffered for far too long. That's why I'll be doing what I'm doing. Oh, that was disgusting, actually. <laughs> I had quite a visceral reaction to that. Now, I want a ceasefire. I want a ceasefire. But more important than a ceasefire to me is not voting with the SNP. Like, how pathetic do you sound? And then the language she's used, right? This is the pressure that Keir Starmer is putting people on, right? I can't imagine the pain of the, of the people who were killed in the attacks on the 7th. And I'm also concerned about the suffering in Gaza. On October the 7th, those were attacks. The problem in Gaza is suffering, right? No mention of Israel bombing shed loads of family homes, bombing hospitals attacking hospitals, right? That's just suffering. We're going to go to Parliament now. 125, the nose to the left, 293. Five people voted for the SNP amendment. The eyes to the right, 125. The nose to the left, 293. So the nose have it, the nose have it. Unlock. I now call Ed Davey to move Amendment K4. So that's potentially somewhat high. I mean, we didn't expect the, the amendment to pass. So uh, what we really want to wait for now um, is news about which MPs, and especially which Labour MPs, um, voted for the amendment because they are the ones who would have broken the whip. Of course, the SNP were whipped to vote for the SNP amendment, as one would imagine that makes sense. Um, Rivka, your thoughts on those numbers while we sort of look into which MPs did and did not break the whip? It's disappointing. Just it's hard to not have, a, as you say, a visceral reaction to hearing the overwhelming no. Um, but I suppose there are still like a, almost 200, you know, 120 MPs, I think they said, that that voted for this amendment, which is I like that's very glass beyond. half full, almost 200 yeah. when it's 125. No, that no, is no. one way of I, looking sorry, at it. I revised down. I revised <laughs> down. Um, my, my brain is fried. Um, but so that must be, I mean, that's like a solid, you know, what will that almost definitely be at least like 50 Labour MPs, including, you know, lots of the non-front benches. Um, but, you know, that sounds like quite a decent, a decent number. Um, but as you said, this is not a vote on whether or not there will be a ceasefire in Gaza. Whatever happens, uh, you know, in the UK parliament, Israel has been given a blank check, both literally, you know, both financially and diplomatically by the US. It's, you know, prime primary international backer um, and diplomatic ally. Um, and it's going to continue regardless. Obviously, um, the UK could have taken a principled stance um, to distance itself from, from what was going on in a historic stance, and it's it's chosen not to. But yeah, like you, I'm much more interested in who um, within the Labour Party is, is you know, um, joining the SNP, because that, I think, will be the real litmus test of, where public opinion um, and where where the Labour Party is at on this issue. Because as you said, 
the Starmer still ahead in the polls, but that's primarily due to the uh, Tories' kind of implosion. You know, there could be ways that st- that Sunak could claw back quite a bit of support, particularly from the far right, over things like the Rwanda plan if he's going to go whole hog against the e- uh, against the um, ECHR. That could rally a huge amount of far right support, which might then, um, you know bring him closer to to where Starmer currently is. But similarly, Starmer is, you know, is moving backwards um, because of the implosion of his own party. You know, party, Labour Party division has the potential, as we've seen with Jeremy Corbyn, to totally wreck its electoral chances. You know, if, and and particularly um, splits over um, questions of principle, because the Labour Party's main distinguishing quality from the conservatives is that it is the you know it's not the nasty party but if labor falls apart because too many mps within it perceive it to be a nasty party a party of genocide a party of unlimited um warfare uh, then then it could well undermine the party's electoral chances the thing i just find so pathetic is people who say i really care about a ceasefire but i'm not going to vote for one if if you really if you really want a ceasefire, but you prioritize Israel's military operation to destroy Hamas, then you don't want a ceasefire, right? Then you don't want a ceasefire. If if, if <laughs> it's as simple as that, I would love a ceasefire, but I'm prioritizing Israel's criminal military operation, which they say is to get rid of Hamas, but we all kind of know is to make Gaza unlivable. Right. If you want a ceasefire, vote for a ceasefire. I would vote for a ceasefire, but it doesn't really matter anyway. And also, um, I want them to be able to keep on fighting so that they can destroy Hamas. Which one is it? Right. Either you didn't vote for a ceasefire because you, you want one, but you don't think it's going to matter that much anyway because it's the United States that controls this and the vote wasn't going to pass. Or you didn't vote for a ceasefire because you think that Israel has every right to keep bombing schools and hospitals because you want to get rid of this terrorist organization, which, by the way, the current prime minister of Israel put shed loads of effort into strengthening because he preferred them as his, his opposing party to Fatah because he thought that then there would be less pressure on him to make any kind of compromises so he could continue expanding settlements and annexing the West Bank, which, as I say, everyone has admitted is illegal for 56 years, right? So, just it's so so pathetic it's so ahistorical do they even believe this like is this incredibly stupid people is this incredibly cynical people what are we looking at um uh, Rivka, i think we're going to wind up now we'll obviously tomorrow have a sort of more full account of who did and who didn't um, rebel against the labor leadership and which mps were and weren't fired um, but i think we're sort of Getting an idea of what some of these Labour MPs are about. Um, any final thoughts from you? Yeah, I mean, this has been a like extremely disappointing evening. Not that it wasn't an inevitability, but you know, a moment where the the kind of diametric opposition that this that this Parliament, not just this government, but this entire Parliament has to. Uh, you know, respect for international law. You know, we we think of the Tories being the party that throws out the rule book um, and and fl- and ships people back to Rwanda, but the you know former DPP is going to change all that. If anything has proven how united, how much of a uni party system we have when it comes to 
absolute and unchecked uh, license for abusers of human rights, um, so long as those abusers are our, are our diplomatic allies and are undertaking, you know, a kind of a proxy war on our behalf. Um, like, it's this, it's this vote, you know, Anyone who thinks that the next election is going to be about voting for uh, the, the, you know, the party of um, of righteousness or the party of progressive uh, values as opposed to the party of conservatism and and right wing nut jobs is is totally deluded. The only thing that the next election is going to be about is who gets to decide the terrain on which the left fights, and is that terrain going to be red terrain or blue terrain? Thank you, Rivka, and thank you all for watching tonight. Um, before we go, NavarroMedia.com slash support is where you can go if you want to help um, us sustain this program, sustain this organization. Um, we are currently running a fundraiser. We're trying to get to 5,000 new paid supporters. If you are one already, thank you so much. If not, do please um, consider becoming one. Um, for now, um, we'll be back tomorrow, um, live again, of course, at 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navarramedia.com support.